Weighing in on some dope topics Lend an ear while we talk our shit Cause you know we bound to be so profound Make you think a little when we push it down Let us do the talking, just relax and unwind Laugh your ass off, baby, have a good time Robin, you, Seth, yeah, we something sublime Run your mouth, bitch, yo, we out of our minds Run your mouth Welcome back to Run Your Mouth Podcast. Special treat. We've got Carr from the Fagcast. The Birdman couldn't make it. We scheduled this during dinner time, so that wasn't going to work out for him. Uh, what, <laughs> what, hap- what happened to the Chicken Man today? Chicken Man had other plans. Had other plans, I believe. Uh, we actually had to record one earlier, so that was probably about all he could take of me. There you go. I got to track him down. I mean, he's not too far from me, so we should be yeah. able to actually get him into uh studio. So Yeah, yeah. Um, the reason we're going to do this one in, this is going to be the, one of the lamest things I've done in my entire life, but we're, we're going to have a book club hour. That's what we're going to do. You sent me a book. I actually read the whole book. We're going to nerd out. I, have you ever done that in your whole life? Book club? Uh, I, you know, actually I have not. Well then we, we both get to be queefs together. True to the fag cast yeah. name. <laughs> that's, that's very nice. That's very good. Very good. Feel very right at home. First question I got for you is I, I, I didn't quite, you know, pick up on this from, uh, from Twitter, but who sent me the free book? I, I like free stuff. Who do I owe the thank you to? Oh, it's uh it's at NVK on, uh, on Twitter. He's, he's a real good dude. He runs, um, uh, if you've hold, heard of cold card wallet or open dimes, he's uh he's the, the mastermind behind that. He's up in Canada somewhere. Uh, well, what the hell? You, you sent me a free book, so plug his business. What's his What's his jam? That's that's it. He makes a cold card card. It's cold card wallets, uh, open dimes, and uh, and yeah, I think if you go to coldcard.com, that's him. He makes it's just hardware wallet, very very secure hardware wallets for storing your Bitcoin. Got you, got you. And it, he's a part of the problem fan that he thought that you know we're not talking Bitcoin enough and we should read the book. I think there's a lot of us that uh that. That would love to see part of the problem. Uh, just give give the head nod to Bitcoin every now and then. But I I, I guess he is. It, it's fun to see the crossover. I will say, Robbie, like it's like because there are accounts that I think of as dedicated Bitcoin accounts, and then accounts that I think of that are dedicated libertarian accounts. But you know, you it's obvious that they're all that we're all like kind of in it together. But you just don't think about it. And 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 so that was really cool that he reached out and was was trying to egg you you and Dave to to read the book. Well, there you go. You know, I actually sat down. I read the whole thing beginning to uh, beginning to end. And so we're going to nerd out and get into it. Now, before we do that, though, there was a big news story earlier in the week that they were saying that uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin. And this is part of why I never really liked Bitcoin. That just sounded too much like Kaiser Sose. It just sound <laughs> it just sounded like a name somebody was making up. Yeah. Uh like, you know, from the usual suspects. So did did you see the thing about the guy who claimed that he was going to finally reveal his identity, the dude with 18 billion dollars? Did did you see the story? Uh I don't know if I saw that specific story, but it's Craig, right? Right. Well, the the first guy who came forward was some Pakistani dude. He looks like the Pakistani version of the bald guy from the league. And then he was also claiming that he doesn't actually have the $18 billion because he lost the keys. Right. Um, uh, no, then, I, did, I actually did not see that story. But then some other guy came out and then he and then that guy said, no, I'm I, I'm the real guy. Um, and I think that's who who you're talking about. Yeah, Craig, right. That's been an ongoing thing. He's a fraud. I mean, he's a gigantic fraud. Uh, it's been an ongoing thing for. Uh, since like 2014 or 15, like he just claims to be Satoshi and, um, you know, frankly, just to, to preface it, I don't think it's all that important who Satoshi is. Uh, and, and I think it like, 
the guy probably wanted to remain anonymous for really, really obvious reasons because you're attacking banks and governments. And, right. I, and like, I tend to want to kind of try to respect that. But there are like Craig Wright's not Satoshi Nakamoto. There's two there's two people, one of whom has passed that. Uh, and, and Satoshi doesn't necessarily have to be just one person. It could just it could be two or more uh, people uh, under a collaborative effort. Uh, but I think there's one alive and then there's one that passed. And those are probably probably Satoshi in some format. Also, you're rich as fuck. You don't want your relatives to know that you got all this money. So mm-hmm, I, I get that mm-hmm. I get saying anonymous. Um, and then I, you ever hear of uh, Jim Rickards or read any of his books? Yeah, yeah. He he's uh, he's one. Of, he's a uh, kind of like a gold bug crash guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the problem with Jim Rickards. I read one of his books and it was fascinating. And um, one of the most fascinating uh, things that he laid out was he was basically talking about how you know. I'm trying to say, think how I can best describe this. He, he's basically saying that all of like the world, um, the world banks kind of, you, you know, they work together and that the next thing that we're going to see is when they crash the current like currency, they're going to try and move everything under one currency with the SDR, which comes out of the IMF. And right. they're just going to, they're going to do the whole thing again. The exact thing that the federal reserve did where they, they just kept printing money and printing money. So once that runs their course, they're like, the system's only going to get bigger because you're, instead of having the Euro and the U S dollar and everything, everyone's going to be under the SDR and the IMF is going to be, you know, the federal reserve on steroids where it's one bank. And then they finally have the ultimate, you know, the ultimate fed where they get to, you know, just have more control and more centralized power, which was a wildly interesting theory. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the other things he kind of got into in his book was he was laying out why there's some skeptics that believe that Bitcoin was actually created by the NSA. Is that something that you've ever heard of or come across? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you make of that? Um, that notion? Uh well, I mean, the uh, the NSA certainly came up with the cryptography behind it. Uh, I believe that was the NSA SHA-256 hashing or, you know, cryptographic algorithm. Um, uh, I, I don't I, I I think like anything, it's not uh, so black and white. So the, I'll, I'll start with no, I don't think that the NSA created Bitcoin, uh, because if you read the history of the cypherpunks that have been trying to hack away at this product for 20 years uh, prior to Bitcoin, um, it kind of it, it it wouldn't really make sense. Like, uh, I, I think it was eCash or BitGold or something like that uh, that Nick Zabo created prior to Bitcoin um, was very close to Bitcoin, right? And, and nobody accused that of being an NSA thing. Uh, it, it, but um, Bitcoin just incorporated one more element that just made it uh, made it all functional um, and aligned all of the game theories in order to make it work. Um, so I don't, I don't think in the context of the fact that for 20 years, some of the brighter, um, crypto anarchists were working on this one solution in that context, I, I, I kind of don't think the NSA just swooped in and, and created something and released it anonymously. I, I, I really doubt it. And I think that those people in the know, um, who were on the same mailing list with Satoshi Nakamoto and so on would probably have been suspicious, uh, had just a random dude come in or if that's how they did it and just released the code to them. Right. Um, the other thing is that it literally doesn't matter if the NSA made it right. Um, if the code works, if the game theory works, it does not matter. Um, it, 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 it could be created by Hitler himself. Now it would be an incredibly stupid thing for the NSA to do or anybody on a public bankroll to do um, unless they have a backdoor, which I, I don't, I have not seen any credible evidence for at all, like not even close. 
Um, and uh, it would be a very, very stupid thing for them to do because they're they're, you know, they're nailing their own coffin. Very interesting. Now, how uh, I, I, how long have you been an investor in Bitcoin for? Like, when did you come across it? Get in early. What what, what was it about? Like, how did he, how did you find out about this? How long have you been in the game for? Um, you just give us a little insight on that. Sure. Yeah. I so I uh, I uh, am a product of the 2008 Ron Paul uh, you know campaign and uh, yeah. and and I and I got very interested in libertarianism. And that furthered with the crash of 08 and, and you know, into to really, you know, the recession into 2011, 2012. And by, you know, I, I, during that time, I, I, I was reading more and more about uh, money, you know, uh, and uh, and also becoming more, I guess, quote unquote, radical in libertarianism. And that was pushing me onto online forums like Reddit, where you could go and read about this stuff because it wasn't readily available um at least in normal outlets. So, uh, so I was hanging out on like the subreddits, like our libertarian, our, uh, ANCAP, our black and gold or golden black or whatever it is. Um, and you couldn't really exist in the, on those subreddits, um, during that, during the early teens without hearing about Bitcoin every now and then. And, like, and I was, you were, go- you were not, co- you were not cool. Like you ain't got no Bitcoin. Get out of our fucking red thing. Get out of cool. here. Get out of here. You cool guy. This guy's yeah. got no red, got no Bitcoin. He's not one of us. This guy enjoys the outdoors and he doesn't have any Bitcoin. Get yeah, out of sh- here. They shamed you into it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and they shamed you into something that uh, only appreciated in value by what a couple thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. So I, I, I wish I had gotten it. I, I was actually very resistant. I was a gold guy. Um, right. And so, but but it just kept coming up. It coming kept coming up. And then uh, I don't know if you remember the Ross Ulbricht case with uh, uh, the Silk Road. You know, I'm sure you know about that. Yes. Um, and I that was that was kind of like the catalyst where I was like, oh shit! Like people are scared, and the right people are scared because they like threw the book at Ross. And and I was I was like, maybe there is something to this. So that's when I started investigating it further. And I dragged ass, and I should have. But I, I think I invested in you know 2015 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, talk about just and then we're, we're going to get into uh, the book, which is uh, the Bitcoin standard, and we're going to nerd out on it. Um, it, it just it, in terms of dragging ass, my investment philosophy over the last about 10 years, maybe 15, it's probably 10 years now. I lost a lot of money in the last crash. I lost money in a couple of real estate investments that turned out to be a total fucking scam. I lost a lot of money on General Motors. Um, a couple other scattered investments. And I was just like, I want nothing to do with the stock market. Cause I was like, that was all money that I made in high school. I worked summer jobs and I was a smart little Jewish kid who wanted to get into finance. And I was like, okay, I'm going to save every dollar. I'm going to put it into the stock market. I'm going to learn how to invest. I'm going to make good decisions. I'm really going to learn how this racket works. And when, when the thing kind of crashed out, there were two things I learned. One is you're kind of at a poker table with better players, Um, that, that was one of the things. And then the next thing that was really not cool is just how much of this is government racket where it's no longer kind of understanding the fundamentals. It's more, Hey, is the government going to fed, is the fed going to print money and put into the stock market that it continues to inflate? And if they're going to do that, then how do you really even kind of like, you know, look at, it's not like, Hey, is this company doing well and is going to do well in the market? It's a, is the government going to prop so much money into the stock market that it's going to continue to fuel the bubble and prices. And that's very hard to kind of predict, especially when you understand, Hey, this thing's going to collapse at some point because, um, you know, we've been putting all this money into the market. It's just, it's not sustainable at some point, this thing, you know, it's not going to work out. 
And so my, my take on it is, hey, I just kind of want to have all my money on the sidelines. Uh, when things go to shit, maybe I'll buy the S&P and I should really between now and then buy gold. And I just never bought the gold. You know, I just didn't do it for yeah. for no reason. For for yeah. years now, I was like, listen, I, I, I get it. They're printing too much money. You don't want to keep your in currency. I also don't want to be in the stock market because I know at some point it's going to come back down because what's going on isn't making any sense. Let's buy some gold. Never bought any gold. And now I'm looking at the print. I was like, you fucking idiot. Like you, you, you knew that you should have bought some fucking gold. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Paul, no it's it's yeah. uh it's it's and man that that is one of those things that um as i'm sure you know when you're reading about it when you're reading about what the stock market is and and in its relationship to the government um it through all sorts of means uh it it's it's like the wildest crazy wildest conspiracy theory you could ever think up and like and like and i remember learning about it and i was like this is insane this is insane this is insane um and then i and that gets you that got me about 60 to 70 percent of the of the way to understanding a lot like you know basic having a, a good grasp of what the hell is actually going on and then learning about bitcoin particularly with things like the bitcoin standard and that type of material right it kind of brings you the rest of the way because you understand how things should be. And so then every th time you look at how things are, you're like, okay, that, that this is effed up for this reason or that reason or this reason. But I mean, to what you were saying, the amount of uh, energy, and I'm just using that as a very loose word, like social yeah. energy or just like, just, just the amount of oomph we put behind building up the stock market is crazy. I mean, it, it is absolutely crazy. I mean, you're thinking about passive investing with like 401ks and, and luring people into this with tax benefits and stuff like that. Um, IRAs. And I know that you can you can invest in other things, but those are kind of the default. That's what everybody just tries to invest in mutual funds and stuff like this. And you're like, literally, people are existing to just feed the stock market, which if um, it wasn't coerced, it would be, it, it likely could be a very, very good thing. It, you know, you're investing in companies that are in, you know, developing capital or developing, you know, developing wealth, um, and, and improving all of society. Uh, but, but due to the fact that a lot of it is just very coerced, you're, you're, you're really just propping up old companies, uh, old companies yeah, that haven't, haven't innovated. I mean, and, I, and, and to, to what you were saying about General Motors, that's kind of what happened there. Yeah. And by the way, when General Motors went out and I, I did a better research about whether or not I should have been invested in General Motors, it was so odd. Like, but what's interesting is if you were kind of just at the time that I invested in General Motors, there was a sentiment of General Motor goes, the economy goes. And right. like if you were just looking for your top 10 stable companies that you invest in. I, General Motors was like top of that list and they were getting oh, yeah. like the good ratings from S like it, it was one of those stocks that, Hey, if you're going to like passively be in the stock market and you want one of those things that you're going to hold to your retire, General Motors is one of them. But then once it went under and I was in college and a little bit smarter and really did my research, I mean, there were people that totally outlined exactly why yes. it, almost fraudulent accounting. If you really look at it, that was propping the thing up. Um, yes. Now, what, what was interesting about what you were saying with the force to be in the market, what you mean is, and now we're going to start getting into some of the ideas in the book, is that you can't hold money. Right. If you're holding money, it's losing value. Yes. And as a result, you're forced to do things to try and get a return just to stay ahead of inflation. And one of the biggest problems about just putting into the stock market, I'm sure uh, you saw Wolf of Wall Street, right? Uh, I actually never did. Uh, it, it's a fun movie. It's worth seeing. Um, yeah, there's, yeah. There, there's a scene in early in Wolf of Wall Street where, uh, uh, uh fuck, uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey 
is explaining like uh what's his name just got to wall street leonardo DiCaprio just got to wall street and he's a great movie review right here (laughs) and he's he's pitching an investment to uh matthew mcconaughey who's the head of the company and matthew mcconaughey goes you just got here why don't you come to lunch and then while they go to lunch he starts explaining to him listen it's not about whether or not investments make money it's about keeping people's money in the system so that it swirls around and basically we can take fees and that's really what Wall Street is. There are more sophisticated players than you there. There are people with quants and and momentums and stuttering the way people are fucking tweeting. All they want is for all of us to have our money in the game because as long as like they're the best players at the poker table, the more mm-hmm. money at the table, the more money they're going to be able to take from us, um, which is part of what sucks that the government's created even things like 401ks or all those other things that, you know, force people into the Roth IRAs, all that bullshit. So let's get into the book a little bit because we're already we're already uh, we're 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 already kind of tangenting here a little bit. Um, so I'd love for you to kickstart the party and tell us why you thought that this was such an important book for me and Dave to read and why you made the recommendation. Give us a little bit about you know your general pitch for this book. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think that this book uh, for for particularly for libertarians comes at. Uh, the importance of Bitcoin from a very libertarian friendly way. So, and, and maybe this is my bias because I was a gold guy um, and and now am a Bitcoin guy. Um, I, I think that it, it, it takes you through monetary history and the do's and don'ts of money and gold satisfied all of them, but one. And he, he kind of leads you into understanding why Bitcoin is that step further from gold that disallows central clearing houses to take control. Okay. And so tell us what the, uh, what the one thing that gold is lacking that Bitcoin has. Right. So gold, particularly in a global economy, um, you, you're, you can't transact it peer to peer physically. You can, in some instances, I could theoretically go over to my neighbor, mow his lawn and get, you know, some, uh, uh, several grams of gold. Uh, but as a feasible monetary instrument for a global economy, it just it, it just doesn't work. And then um, and then also just to kind of go off that point to create a digital model where, for example, everyone's physical gold is stored somewhere. And then like, you know, it, it, like basically what the old banking system was where it's backed by gold, but then you have the physical currency or your credits or whatever that's represented. Like, in other words, you can have a bar of gold. Uh, that you own and just stays in a vault. And then, you know, you basically have the equivalent of a debit card against that bar of gold where you're moving around the credits. The problem with that is that you're putting too much power into the bank, into government, that if shit hits the fan, you know, how are you going to get your physical gold? Who well, really right. owns? And, yeah. And yeah, and, and, and I'm glad you, you I, I should back up a little bit too. Um, the, the other thing is that, um, let me let me see how to uh, yeah so so as you can see just through I mean you could just take American history for example is is ultimately what happens like what you were saying Robbie is that uh, people who want easier easier transactions or, or, or an easier transaction experience um, will tend to store their gold at a like let's just say a bank and then rather than carting their gold around and all of this while they still can own it uh, physically in their home which is good. Um, they, they transport pieces of paper around and that, you know, cash, what, what, what becomes cash then, but at, at some point you say, okay, well, the bank is under no real obligation to, 
um, not issue extra cash that's not backed by the gold, uh, which is, in fact, fractional uh, reserve banking. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's ultimately what it is. And it's like this psychological lead where people are like, okay, I have gold. I'm exchanging with gold. Oh, but that doesn't work for for this next uh, step. Like I want to trade with somebody in the next town over and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then and so the banks are all too happy to say, oh, well, we'll store your gold and we'll just shift the ledger and just say that they own that gold now. Um, and then and then the next logical step is, well, you know, we don't necessarily need uh, it, we don't need a one to one ratio of gold notes to gold. Uh, you know, we can just issue some extra money. And as long as 99 percent of people or 98 percent of people or in today's terms, 10 percent of people don't come looking for their money at the same time, a bank run then we don't have problems and we, you know, it, it, and, and we're, some would say stimulating the economy. Some would say issuing free money and, and taking the, you know, taking a, a, a profit from it. Uh, but that, that is the ultimate problem that, uh, and I, and, and I still, even though I am a complete convert to Bitcoin over gold, I still hesitate. Like the, the, the gold people are my people. Right. And so I don't want to like badger, 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 but that's, so if okay, you go, if so, you go back to a gold standard, you're just going to go through this routine again. Yeah. So basically, what you're uh, what you're saying is one of the risks inherent to gold is that you're going to end up with basically centralized locations in which people are storing their gold. Yes. We know that that's going to lead to fractional reserve banking, which is essentially inflationary. And the advantage to Bitcoin over gold is that since it's not in a centralized location, there's no opportunity for someone to basically hold Bitcoin and then engage in fractional reserve banking. It's a public ledger of where all the Bitcoin is. So it's not like one person can say, hey, I've got a million a uh, million dollars worth of Bitcoin stored here. And I know that no one, you know, people don't operate and need all that Bitcoin at once. I can actually loan out $10 million worth of Bitcoin because that's just not the way Bitcoin works. It's not like people ever need the physical Bitcoin. It's a public ledger of who has what. And, you know, you, you send it to people for payment when you need it or to store value. It's not, it just doesn't operate in the same way that cash or gold does where it can all be stashed in one location and they know how much is there and other people don't. And so they're able to actually give out more than what they have. Exactly. And, and, and there's two things I would, I would say here, the, you nailed it right on. The other cool part is that you can audit the fed. You can run a node. You can run a fully validating node that enforces consensus rules of the network and audits every single payment that you receive because it has downloaded every single transaction that has ever occurred in Bitcoin, traces it back to the original mining date or time or, you know, the, 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 the mining reward and ensures that it's valid. So it, it, you're, you are biting every gold bar that comes in to make sure that it's real. Um, so you can audit the Fed. Every, every payment that I receive, I audit. Um, and, and your, your software just does that automatically. It will not recognize fraudulent Bitcoin. Um, if it does, we got a problem, you know, and, right. and, and so, so that's, that's one thing. Um, and then the next thing is I completely forgot. So go, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So what I want to do is, um, I, I want to kind of, uh, run through some of the arguments of this book of what exactly is the major problem of, um, government currency. And one of the things that I really, really loved about this book is that it, it, it explained, um, I think as, as libertarians, when we try and convince people to our world of liberty, 
Um, one of the things that I like to do is explain some of the costs to the government system. So like, for yeah. example, when people walk around and they go, Hey, well, government's going to give you free healthcare. Well, that's the benefit. Let's look at some of the costs, some of the costs is, um, the fact that they've created a marketplace of insurance, which drives up all, uh, all costs. The fact that there's licensing laws behind this, like, you know what I mean? You, you have to start exploring, well, what are we losing by doing this? Economics um, in one lesson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, so it's the, the full unintended consequences of every action. Exactly. And so what's really amazing about this book was it really explores the what I want to say is the spiritual cost of money that's consistently losing value. And so I want yes. to kind of get into that a little bit. That's so awesome. that's awesome that you keyed in on that, because that is not a um, I don't know why, but uh, I don't hear people talk about that nearly as much, maybe because it's assumed within the libertarian community, people understand it. But uh, but that's such an, a fascinating part of it. Yeah. And, and it's so apparent. And so I want to get into it a little bit. Yeah. So first is I, I can't point to any specific study, but I know that I've read in the, in the past that one of the number one indicators of a person's ability to be successful in life is their ability to delay gratification. People who can say, hey, I, I'm not going to jerk off right now. I'm going to get my homework done first or and then I'm, I'm going to jerk off twice tomorrow. I'm going to jerk off twice tomorrow. Sure. If I delay this gratification, I'm going to save my load. Yeah, I could save. I could jerk off extra tomorrow. Yeah. That is the single biggest indicator about a person's ability to be successful in life is their ability to delay gratification. Can you just imagine like two parents like outside of their kid's room? Like, look, look at little Johnny. He's he's he delayed his gratification for four months and he's, he's going to be in there for a while. I'm so proud. <laughs> he really earned it. He really uh, earned this one. This is, this is time preference right here. Look at Johnny go. <laughs> All right. So but before we get into uh, time preference, right? Cause I have a little bit of a gripe with that, which I think okay. you might f- find amusing. Okay. So let, let's just understand that delaying gratification is a uh, tremendous indicator about whether or not someone is going to have success in life. So now we have a bit of a problem. That the U.S. government has printed, um, I, I mean, it, it might be a trillion dollars a year. I think I did the math. And um, with basically every 20 years, you're losing about 30 percent of your wealth. I believe that that's about what it is. And that's based off of reported inflation numbers. So I'm sure it's actually worse. And I'm not that good at math, so I could be wrong. But what I can tell you for certain is that the government and by the way, that's not even since uh, all the QEs have happened. That's more like of a historic look back. So let's just understand that the government is putting trillions of dollars into the economy every single year. And the more that you create a supply for something, the, the less value it's going to have. They're inflating the currency. It, it's it's what they're trying to do. They're trying to hit 2% inflation. They're not lying about it. You know what I mean? It's not right. even like they're trying to hide this story. They're telling you, hey, we're going to take 2% of your money every single year. And the reality is, how do you target inflation when you're just printing? You know what I mean? It, it's more than that because they're also creating bubbles. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's just understand that y- your dollar, the value of it is constantly eroding. Mm-hmm. So what is the cost of a constantly eroding dollar? Well, the answer is people aren't incentivized to save money. If if every time you were handed money, it became more valuable. If you just sat on it and six months later, it could be worth more. You might make the decision, hey, I'm going to sit on money. But if not only is your money going to be worth less, but they actually incentivize you to borrow more and consume more like it, they're incentivizing everybody to enjoy to um, basically invest in short sighted behavior. And now if we understand that spiritually speaking, everybody's better off kind of saving and delaying gratification, 
at the root of it, money, which is what we like, uh, everything requires money. It's at the root of our entire lives. It's at the root of everybody showing up to work. It's at the root of every single decision you're ever going to make at the root of it. We're playing against a clock where it's losing its wealth. And you kind of have a feeling of, I either need to risk this money or I need to spend it. You can't just earn it and put it aside and not have to think about it. And so let's understand that culturally, you're going to have effects that we're incentivizing everybody to consume and be short-sighted. I'm going to stop for a second because I'm sure you have something to add to that. No, I think you're. I think you nailed it, man. I, I think it's it is uh, it, it's the the cure to devaluing money is fast living, and and uh, and that's not. Uh, you, I'm not saying that you need to be a monk uh, or anything like that, but but by and large, uh, a, a society that saves and invests. Um, rather than spends, uh, is going to be far more sustainable over the over the course of time, and uh, and subject to a whole lot less volatility or at least negative volatility. Um, and 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 you and, get to and, see and you get to see the fruits of your labor. You get to see, hey, I put aside money and now it's worth more. And and like th- these things, they, they like they snowball. Where it's like I put aside money, now it's worth more, and now I can actually afford uh, this real estate investment. And then, oh my God, look at this wealth that I've accumulated over a lifetime that I can pass on to the to my children. And like it, it kind of creates a positive framework for every single dollar that you earn. You know that you can hold on to it, and it's going to appreciate in value, and you can do more with it as long as you aren't compulsive and just run out and spend it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and, and there's no truer test than, than actually starting to accumulate. Like I'm, I'm every, every Bitcoiner will tell you this. There is no truer test than actually starting to purchase Bitcoin, even if it's small, you know, some do 10 bucks a week whenever you get paid or something like that. But you, you will start to get addicted to checking your balance and, and, and seeing that like, it's worth more, more and more and more. And, and I'm telling you, it affects your, it's positive your vibes. It's positive vibes because you know that you're doing something positive. It's a step in the right direction and you're growing and you're doing something good for yourself. So much as a person who, who uh, gets anxious and depressed is it, it, those are kind of your your brain's reward mechanisms for telling you, "Hey, you're fucking up," or "Hey, I don't like what's going on here. I don't like that I'm improve that I'm not improving my situation." And so, when you're just getting paid in cash, that's losing its value. That's fucking anxiety inducing. You're like, well, what do I do with it? It's gonna be worth less. I better go fucking eat this fucking sandwich. I don't care if this coffee is five dollars. Now I'm more just speaking for the way I live my life, but I think it proves the point. One of the best examples he gives in the book, I meant to bring the book with me. It's on page 94, but he's talking about an investment in family um, that in a traditional society, one of the best investments you can make when you're young is using your your youth towards having a family because then later in life, um, you got someone who's going to be able to take care of you. It's just like he kind of outlines it as being a sensible investment. I know that there are so many people, if you actually look at it, I think the people that are getting married are the ones that can afford to do it. And a lot of us who are involved in just kind of like these shitty relationships and the Tinder game and all that, it's because we don't really think we're buying houses. We don't really see ourselves as being people who are investing in a future or having money for a future. And so we're so like I'm just saying at the core of it, like forget like even just the savings investment and all the prosperity that can come from people doing a better job of allocating capital. Just we're incentivizing and creating a culture of people who are um, being short-sighted that, that are just always kind of looking for like instant gratification and instant rewards. And it's because at the very core of our society, you can't just get paid and hold on to it and feel the rewards of thinking long-term. 
and that's mm-hmm. all from the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, tr- yeah, yeah. I mean, now, now there are people that are predisposed to doing that. Regard that 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 uh, you could say we're furthered by by government tinkering. Uh, that, but but we all exist on a spectrum of of, uh, and maybe I won't bring up time preference yet. But um, faster or slower living, or however you want to look at it. But 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 certainly uh, the the policies uh, of the monopoly over us right now uh, are. are push people towards fast living and, and by uh, the way they're blatant about it the bush got out there and said we just need everyone to spend it's a consumer economy we need well, people to spend how do we it's because it's the, spending it's because it's their philosophy i mean it's 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 not like they're it's not like they try to hide most of this most of this is out out and yeah. out i mean it's it's above board quote unquote i mean it's 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 that that is largely what keynesian economics is about and and uh and so it's not like that's that, that's that's why that's almost why I feel more comfortable talking about uh, Austrian economics and and the stuff that we have been talking about so far is because I don't feel as though I'm uncovering a mystery or a conspiracy theory. I don't feel like a conspiracy kook. I'm just like, no, this is what they're saying, and I just disagree with it. I disagree with it for this, this, and this. Um, and and it and if it wasn't out and out, it would seem like the most insane conspiracy theory you've ever heard. Right. A hundred percent. Okay. So now I want to get into, um, time preference. Um, and time preference is basically like, okay, there's some people who listen to the show that have read more literature than me, and I'm sure they're going to put their finger in their mouths and want to gag at the fact that we're now going to describe time preference. And then there's half the people who have never heard of time preference and might come across in an article or might want to read one of these, one of these books. And I'm going to help you understand it because I had a really hard time with this concept and time preference is basically the nerdy way of explaining what we've been talking about of a person's choice about whether or not they're going to consume now or delay gratification. Mm-hmm. So here's my gripe with time preference. It, the language that they use is a little bit confusing to me because if you it like high time preference implies to me a person who values time. He looks at time and he says, hey, this is something that I value. Whereas low time preference almost like conceptually sounds to me like someone who's shorting time and says time is not that important to me, which is the absolute backwards way from the way that they use high time preference and low time preference. They're using high time preference to say it's a person who wants to consume immediately because they have a high time preference. They want it right now. Whereas someone with a low time preference will prefer to consume something later. Now, what bothers me just as a language usage to say low time preference is being all consumed later. What bothers me, low time preference sounds to me like a person who does like he doesn't care as much about time, meaning he doesn't really get understand the concept that it's worth him worth it to him to delay gratification to consume later. Now, I get that I am 100 percent wrong, but do you kind of understand what I'm saying? I two things. I literally have never thought about it the way that you thought about it. And now I think I'll be forever broken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you understand, uh, like to say low time preference is the yeah. person who prefers to have a higher value on time. It is. It is bizarre. Me, but I, yeah. I, now I, I have yeah. an explanation of why, of why that probably is. Okay. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll I go for it. I believe, I believe uh, that uh, the pioneer of the idea of time preference and particularly correlating it with interest rates was Eugen Bombawerk. Um, and I believe he was a German, 
Uh, so I, my guess is it was just clunky German to English translation. Right. Okay. So here's the way I remember it. And it, by, so he, here's, what's crazy. I'll just tell you, it took me chapters and I kind of almost need to reread this where I just understood that when he was talking high time preference and low time preference, that he's just referring to, you know, not being compulsive or short sighted. So I could mm-hmm. kind of figure out conceptually, but I, I almost had to like overlook it each time. And then I finally realized here's, here was my, like my memory trick for remembering it. High time preference. People want to get high. They want to do it immediately. So when you say high time preference, they're referring to people that want to consume immediately, whereas low time preference, um, it, you know, is just the inverse. Okay. But just yep. lingu- linguistically, I think I already kind of understood why to me it's like it's a very backwards way of explaining the concept. But if you go and you read more of the literature, it, it's like th- their nerdy math way of explaining these concepts is heavily reliant on conveying the entire behavior of being compulsive and short-sighted in the word of high time preference. So just that's a way of remembering high. I want to get high. I want to consume immediately. And so that's the way of con- like conveying this concept. I don't know. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah. I think you just actually patched up my brain after breaking it. So I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So now that we understand that there's like a spiritual side to money, it's in the fabric of society. And that if we, um, had money that did not, you know, go down in value, people would probably operate a little bit differently in a way that would benefit everybody. And we, by, and we haven't really even delved into the economic side of it, that the, um, there's a lot of economic prosperity that can come from the fact that people are saving and can actually make investments later on. Um, can you think of any, like, I, 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 cause I know that's a conceptual that they mention a lot, but can, can we think of any like specific inventions or something that came from, you know, the fact like they, they, they like to talk about that a lot, that so much of economic development can come from savers. Um, and I can kind of understand conceptually why that would be true, but can you think of any, like, Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and I'd like to point out too, like, uh, that, that money is important because it's, it's basically, it's probably at least half of all transactions ever. You know, I mean, other than the few people who are bartering relative to global economy, it's 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 part of every single transaction um, or it's one half of every single transaction that occurs in the world. So it's it's not just that it is a like it is economically incredibly, incredibly important, not for just like um, um, like spiritual or or or, you know, savings reasons, but it's it's just objectively economically uh, critical. and and then to your point, like a, a saving this idea of time preference and delaying gratification, I would say something like, well, you know, the the take like the Wright brothers or something like that. Um, they could have used all those materials uh, that they had and all the knowledge that they were acquiring to just keep building bikes. And, uh, right. you know, and, and that and, and that could have served them in the short term. But it would it, it likely in a flooded market, they're going to be um, they're going to be you know, squeezed by competition down to just an average, average gains. But instead they delayed gratification. They said, we're going to make enough bikes to get by. And, and I don't know, I'm not a Wright brothers history at buff. So, you know, spare yeah. me, but, uh, um, they, but they said, actually, we're going to sacrifice a tremendous amount of time, um, which, you know, roughly equals money say, you know, that, that, that could have been otherwise spent build, building bicycles. We're going to sacrifice all of this time, um, up front over the course of years, also the materials and also the social ridicule of what we're trying to do. Um, and we're going to attempt and attempt and attempt over the course of nearly a decade or whatever it was. And, but, but, but that came to fruition. Now, there, now you could say they would, they may have failed and, and that, and that's fair. 
Um, but but these types of huge breakthroughs tend to come from from much much longer term uh, right. investments and and not um, short sighted thinking. Love it. Um, okay, so now that we, uh, we we've really taken a very good look at the fact that we'd be better off with the money that at least was a store of value. That's one of the core functions of money is that it's supposed to be a store of value. Now what I want to do is really prove to you that the way that the government and the Fed operates is eroding the value of the dollar all the time. Um, and so the first thing I want to take a look at, I don't know if you ever saw this. I remember I, I, I hadn't watched this in you know probably over 10 years, uh, but I remember like 10 years ago, I was working in a hedge fund and um, when QED was going on and there was this video of like these two bears with robot voices just explaining quantitative easing. Have you ever seen this video? No, I never have. Okay, so we're gonna. I, we're, we're, I'm gonna steal quite a bit of content from from this guy because we're gonna watch two videos. But just in terms of breaking down the insanity of the Fed and what they're doing in the money supply, these two videos do a much better job than a, a, any way I could possibly try and articulate it. So um, we're gonna listen to the first two minutes of this video. It's got over six million views. Uh, I, I'd like to give credit to the person. There's a thing in the video that says extra. Uh, normal. And then this I see was published by um, Malikonomes, spelled M-A-L-E-K-A-N-O-M-S. Um, but it's only got 12,000 subscribers. So I, I really don't know who the original creator of this stuff was because I also see it linked to Alt News Channel. Um, but I, I just want to give credit before before you know we play a bit of the content. So I want to play the first two minutes of this video and then we'll discuss. All right. Okay. Did you hear about the Fed? No. What about the Fed? They announced another round of the quantitative easing. What does that mean? It means they are going to make large asset purchases via POMO. What does that mean? It means they are going to expand their balance sheet and buy treasuries. What does that mean? It means they are going to print a ton of money. So why do they call it the quantitative easing? Why don't they just call it the printing money? Because the printing money is the last refuge of failed economic empires and banana republics, and the Fed doesn't want to admit this is their only idea. So why do they want to print the money? Because they say we have the deflation, and the deflation is very bad. What is the deflation? The deflation is when prices of the things we buy go down. Isn't that good? Doesn't it mean the people can buy more of the stuff? Yes, but the Fed said this is bad, especially during the recession. So they think that during the recession, when the people have less money to buy the stuff, it is bad that the prices go down? Yes, the Fed would rather have the inflation. So why does the Fed think we have the deflation? Because the CPI said so. But aren't the food prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the gas prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the health care costs higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't tuition prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the taxes higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the subway fares higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the stock prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the bond prices higher than a year ago? Yes. So what is deflating right now? The only thing deflating that I can see is the Fed's credibility. Did they have a lot of credibility to start with? No. Why not? Because the Fed has been wrong about every major economic development in the past 20 years. You mean they didn't see the internet stock bubble? No. In fact, they helped fuel the internet stock bubble. And they didn't see the housing bubble? No, in fact, they helped cause the housing bubble. And they didn't see the subprime crisis? 
No, in fact, they told us subprime problems were contained right before the shit hit the fan and the Lehman went bankrupt. Okay, so as a person who kind of understands the Fed and how insane it is, that's a pretty great two minutes in terms of just explaining um, what the Fed did with quantitative easing. Yes, yes, it is. It's it's uh, it's, uh, very uh, naked. (laughs) (laughs) And I also suggest going to watch the whole thing. It get the second half of it is also really interesting, and it becomes really funny where they keep repeating the Ben Bernanke, the Ben Bernanke, and how he came into having the job, and he's never really worked the job. The whole thing's great. But let's just take a moment to understand what money is. It's a medium of exchange. It's a unit of account, and it's a store of value. So when government's printing, you know, basically it erodes one of the very functions of money where it no longer becomes a store of value. Right, right. It ruins that that premise. And and then one of the things that um, this guy uh, points out in the book is that, like, since we've gone off, the the world's gone off the gold standard. um, So there's been 56 episodes of hyperinflation. And also when countries go to war, um, they can really, you know, just print, print, print and totally erode the value of currencies, which has happened numerous times. So, well, and, and I just to hop in, Robbie, like, I, like, I, I think that that almost is backwards be, be, because the entire idea of a country getting into a war is nearly predicated on the idea that they can print their way into it. Right. Because um, if they were stuck with the gold standard, which we saw, there was less war because they couldn't really afford to do it. They can't afford to do it because eventually, if it's hard money, you have to go door to door and ask people for money or or, or take it from them. And that's costly right. um, because nobody's going to want to give it because they're not going to get any benefit out of that war. Now, there there are there are edge cases where it's like, oh, we're going to go loot that we're going to go ransack this village and steal all their gold. And like, yeah, I mean, people got up for that, but uh, that that's just not. But not for uh, killing brown people in Iraq. It's no, I, I, in any modern context, it just it just would not be very feasible. It just wouldn't. So, OK, so now that we understand that it's very important that we have functional money and it's a store of value and government is ruining the ability of money to be a store of value because it will print and it will just continue to print. And th- they're in the business of inflation because that's the easier that's the easiest way for them to tax us and take some of our money. So let's look at what could be a good store of value. And one of the things I never had understood in the past, and to tell you how much I don't, I didn't understand it, I own like some physical silver because I thought that was a good investment. Um, but he talks about high stock to flow ratio. Yeah. And let me, I'm going to explain what that is to, 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 because I never heard of it before this, but take a silver investment, which I did. Someone had told me, hey, listen, don't invest in gold. Your better bet is silver. It's a better value. And silver is was actually used um, as currency more often. And it's like, you know, more easy to do transactions with. The problem with everything other than basically Bitcoin and gold is that there's a shit ton of it in the earth. And Mm -hmm. so, for example, if we decided that we were going to use uh, silver as currency and the value of silver went way up, what would happen is um, everyone with a silver mine would start pulling a shit ton of it, more more of it out of the ground. And basically the value of silver would go down on all of us and the mine would just capture what the increased value was. And that's true of basically everything. It's true of zinc. It's true of copper. I guess it's true of platinum. The one thing it's not true of is gold, uh, because when it comes to gold, we've actually pulled so much of it out of the ground over uh, history. 
and the the reserves of it are so low um, that it's nearly impossible that even if, like even if gold were to double in value, it's not like tomorrow they can pull so much of it out of the ground that gold would instantly come down in value because most of it's already been mined. It's above ground, and we like we we already have knowledge of it. There's no real way. It's it's the one physical element that you can't really flood the market with. Do I have that right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 the idea. And then the other thing, so uh, when it comes to store of value because of a high stock to flow ratio, gold is the only thing that um, that qualifies. Um, when it comes to a physical currency, basically no physical currency qualifies because you're always at risk of the fact that the government can print an endless amount of money and erode your wealth. Um, and then where Bitcoin does fulfill that need is that there's actually a cap on how much of it can be mined. Um, and so the rate at which it can be mined is also there's a cap on it because it's basically I think it's every 10 minutes like the algorithm is set where the the calculations become increasingly more complicated, um, ensuring that like even if processing power gets better, it can only be mined at a certain rate and there's a finite amount of Bitcoin that can ever be actually mined and so therefore there's a limit like not only is there a limit on the inflation from bitcoin it's actually it should be priced into the value because there's a set max on how much of it can ever actually exist yes yes uh, yeah and just to back up a little bit for the listeners that aren't familiar bitcoin uh uh validates all the transactions on the blocks uh, that that are part of the network through what's known as a blockchain you guys know uh you know you've heard that i'm sure um, so what what ha what happens is uh, all of the nodes on the network, and I run one, and you can run one. Just download the software; it's very very simple, and I recommend everybody do if you want to get into it. Um, all of the nodes on the network um, verify all incoming transactions, and they store them in a mempool, like a memory pool. It's like a bus stop. There's a bunch of people outside of the bus stop, and then miners come in and they uh, confirm these transactions by placing them in the blockchain. Um, for that service, and, and they do that by solving cryptographic puzzles. I'm going to try and keep it kind of simple so that it's it's uh, easy to like easier for people that aren't familiar with Bitcoin to understand. So they they do that by solving puzzles, um, and when they place the next block of transactions in the blockchain, right now they receive the transaction fees um, that everybody has, that, which are set by a market, a fee market, um, and Right now, they still receive a block reward, and that is how new Bitcoin is issued into the system. Um, and so it's basically a reward for the work that you put in. It's called proof of work. Uh, and so you sacrifice energy, you burn energy, and you receive Bitcoin in exchange. Um, when Bitcoin began, uh, the Genesis block in January of 2009, the Bitcoin reward was 50 Bitcoins per block. Now, it, then, it, then it ha it, that block reward reduces every four years. Um, and so now it is going to, in May of 2020, it's going to go down to six and a quarter Bitcoins per block. And so that will, that will put the stock to flow ratio somewhere near gold. I think it'll put it around 50, but the point is that it's going to be decreasing and decreasing, and decreasing. And at some point the miners will just be receiving transaction fees. They will no longer be receiving new Bitcoins because no new Bitcoins will be issued. And, and so there will, they, go ahead. Do, do they predict that there will be enough transaction fees that there will continue to be like, a, okay, firstly, you might have enough people who are so invested in Bitcoin that they want to make sure that there's a diverse amount of people who are running the algorithm uh, just because they want to preserve their wealth. You know, if I, if I have a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, I might be 
highly incentivized just to have a center that's running nodes and you know uh, the, the algorithm to make sure that like the you know the the, the blockchain's getting uh, backed up on all different kinds of servers just a little bit over my head in terms of how it works so it could be that once there is no bitcoin left to be mined there's going to be plenty of people with an incentive to preserve the network um but w- when it, when it reaches that that stage where there's no longer being bitcoin given out to people who are processing um, I guess both the nodes and performing the math functions, which is the um, which is essentially the mining. It's just running the processing power to do the math functions to get paid out the Bitcoin. Um, it, it, are there any fears, I guess, that the processing fees won't be enough, that like you're going to have less people who will be, I guess, running, you know, running the software or whatever? Right. Uh, so I'm not particularly scared of that scenario, but it is a scenario that could play out. Uh, so I, I just don't think it's, I don't think based on the last 10 years of trajectory that it is a likely one, but I th- I'll back up just a little bit um, because I think I skipped over something that's fairly important. And that is that e- that the that the cryptographic puzzles that the miners are solving um, uh, adjust in difficulty based on the total amount of power on the network that are trying to solve those puzzles. Because they want it to be solved at, at, at the same rate, no matter at what, which I think rate, is no one Right, which I think is at one to ten minutes. So in other words, like if you have a like yep. if if someone invented a supercomputer computer tomorrow that could solve today's problems in a, at, you know at one minute, the problems would become more difficult. That it would still take the supercomputer ten minutes to perform it. Yeah, and and just for for simplicity, that it's it's a pretty brilliant trick of cryptography. It's 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 pretty cool how they do it. Um, and and it is legitimate. We've been through very big price swings, and and you know we get through it. Um, so to your question, uh, you know, um, will, will, will the, will the processing fees, will the transaction fees alone be enough to sustain it? And I, I I think that they will. And I think that this was a very critical technical discussion in Bitcoin, uh, you know, ongoing, uh, until a, it came to, uh, loggerheads in 2017 and that was the Bitcoin cash hard fork, but the, the, the 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 bitcoiners the the btc people say we need to keep the block size small and that means that if there's a bunch of people waiting to get on the bus at the bus stop we only want that bus to have a few seats because we want those fees to be high which sounds counterintuitive you say well you're trying to create this global global money um shouldn't the fees be fairly uh fairly small and they were for a long time uh, but we want to keep the base layer, layer zero or layer one, I guess, uh, the Bitcoin core network very, very secure. Um, so we want, we need those bus passengers to pay the bus driver. And if the bus driver has a huge bus and there's not a lot of passengers, it, it the, you know, the fee market disappears. And then people drop offline and then the cryptographic problem solving like the, the the difficulty drops and then anybody can with a computer can fire it up and just start wreaking havoc on the network so um keeping that the block size small or the bus size small uh allows both for a tremendous amount of security on the base layer uh and and think about what you're purchasing if you're if you and also it well here's the biggest thing if if Bitcoin, two primary purposes, the first is to be a better store of value than government currency. And secondly, just to really to be free and independent of government mm-hmm. when it comes to, I, I guess, the medium of exchange aspect of currency, um, which is, you know, that you can quickly use it. So ba- based on the current designs of the network, it's not exactly built for quick transactions. 
what will most likely happen if Bitcoin is more widely used is that you'll have basically things that happen with Bitcoin, not as a part of like the blockchain, almost off network, like me handing you um, like a USB card that has a certain amount of money on it or smaller transactions taking place off the network and then getting kind of loaded into the network later. From what I understand, and this is my first foray into the Bitcoin and this is the only book I've read on it. But what you're describing is that the core function here is supposed to be, um, you know, preserving wealth. And so therefore keeping it kind of slow um, and inefficient and also that it's that the entire blockchain is being backed up on countless different computers all the time um, is the best way of having the store of value element. Yes. And you can and you can sort of think about this like in in um, as a correlation corollary to like the court system. And you can think of the Bitcoin base layer as the Supreme Court. Um, Robbie, if you and I um, if I you know, just say wanted to buy, um, buy a sandwich from you. I, I know that you're a, a sandwich investor. And so I know that you have <laughs> several and you're looking to offload them. And if I buy a, a sandwich from you, it's likely that we're not even going to write up a contract. Although I know that you as a, a as a Jewish man might want to, <laughs> uh, I say, you know, no need for the contract, Robbie. Here's, you know, here's the money. Um, and, and so we don't even have a contract written up, right? Like it's just an informal, it's it's an informal exchange. If you and I, Robbie, wanted to go into business podcasting together and let's say we were making $1,000 a month or something like that and we wanted to split it, we'd probably make a contract. We're, we're still not taking it to a court system. We're probably not even taking it to a court system if there's a dispute. It's just a formalization. Um, you, as you get into higher economic sums, then maybe when there's disputes, you you take it through the court system. That that's kind of how this is built because the Bitcoin base layer is meant for the most high importance, high security uh, transactions. I mean, you know, big stuff. There's no need uh, for everybody's computer to know that I bought a, a sandwich from Robbie. Like, and maybe we don't even we don't even want it. Robbie yeah, we want to keep want, that quiet. You know. Yeah, Robbie wants to keep that on the down low. He doesn't want people that he doesn't want to destroy the the sandwich market. What before he gets out? <laughs> before he exit scams it. Exactly. Um, so so that's kind of the idea. Is that ultimately and so because of network effects and the way that 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 this the the bitcoin network grows there it's it's a little bit herky jerky especially early on so you get into these scenarios where it's like it's a pain in the ass to send on the base layer and we haven't implemented a next layer yet although now we have it's called lightning network and 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 i've messed around and it's it's really really cool it's promising lightning. it's got a little bit of ways to go but um that is not cleared on the bitcoin blockchain it's just a second layer to the blockchain and ultimately i can clear things through the blockchain but um again it would be like writing up a contract and I may never take it to court. I may just keep it informal, but I could if I wanted to. Okay, so we we, we deviated a, a little bit from my outline here, which is fine. And we've taken a, a, like a, a deep dive into some of the technical aspects of how Bitcoin works. Now, the next thing I want to look at, so we've, we've outlined how money is supposed to be a store of value and government prints a lot of it. So it, it's eroding that function. Now, the next thing that we want to take a look at, and this is what gets um, a lot of people very excited, especially the libertarians for Bitcoin, is if we can get money kind of out of government's hands, uh, we take whoa, we take a lot of the power away from government. And so I want to play another one of these talking bear videos 
um, talking a little bit about how the Fed works. And um, we're, we're actually gonna, we're going to play about five minutes of this. Uh, but what we're really going to see is the power that we've given to private banking institutions in the Fed's very existence. And then we're going to take a look at some of the other costs of um, not having a free monetary market for money and that basically we have a centralized authority um, that dictates interest rates and that's going to basically fuck up every single price control. Said a lot of information there. Sounds complicated. Um, let's watch a couple minutes of this video. The Fed actually regulates the economy. So we are still called a free market economy, even though we are regulated by the Fed? Yes. What is this Fed? It's short for the Federal Reserve. So is the Fed free? No. It costs $2 billion a year to operate. And who pays the $2 billion a year to run the Fed? The American people. Then what part of the free market system that the Fed regulates is really free? I don't have an answer to that. Why do we even have a Federal Reserve in the first place? It is supposed to prevent economic depressions. But are we not in a depression now? It would seem so. Does the Fed know that we are in a depression now? Yes, but I believe they call it an economic down curve. So is that all the Fed does? No, it also distributes the money printed by the U.S. Treasury. How much money has been distributed by the Fed? The 2007 figures show that $829 billion are in circulation. Does that include the recent bailouts? No, the $700 billion bailout in 2008 by the Bush administration and the $700 billion by Congress and President Obama was not included in this figure. So the bailouts were for nearly double the entire amount of money previously in circulation? Yes, approximately $1,400,000,000. That is an insane amount of money. Is there anything else the Fed does? It lends money to Congress. You are describing what sounds like a bank. That is correct. It is a privately owned bank. Who owns this privately owned bank? The Federal Reserve is owned by several other privately can you, owned Can you banks. pause it for one second? Which yeah. privately owned? Okay, so just to kind of like this next piece of information is probably true. He's going to list off the individuals who are believed to own the Fed. And Warburg, J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, I mean, I, I, I bet like, you know, with crazy odds against me that those people are owners. Um, but this next piece of information I don't believe is fact. If you Google who owns the Fed, uh, th there's no public listing of the private banks that own the Fed. Uh, but just the very idea that private banks basically own the Fed, are able to lend money to the government and then collect interest on the money that they've printed. It's not money that they have. It's not like bankers got together, you know, Warren Buffett got together with uh, um with, uh, you know, uh, the guy who created uh, the, the Bezos and gold and, uh, uh, Warren Buffett didn't get together and go, Hey, we're going to give $200 billion to the American government and we're going to get interest back. It's like the two of them got together and they said, okay, we're going to put $200 billion in here. Uh, but because of fractional reserve banking, we can actually give them a trillion dollars. And then a couple years down the line, we go, Hey, we just print money anyway. So why not give them $10 trillion and then have them pay back interest. So the idea that somebody can, somebody other than than the government firstly the fact that the government prints money that it just spends is stupid but the fact that they don't even print the money private banks print the money and then they have to pay interest on it is incredibly stupid it's pretty wild you want me to start <laughs> yeah so let's get let's continue to listen but uh, like just to, 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 to stay as factually accurate as i can while really not knowing what i'm talking about um <laughs> when it comes to this specific list while these videos i think are great th this list is not like 100 percent fact but go ahead give it uh play play it back up sure 
Banks. The owners of the Fed are Lehman Brothers of New York. Goldman Sachs of New York. Rockefeller Brothers of New York. Rothschilds of London and Berlin. Lazard Brothers of Paris. Israel Moses Seif of Italy. Kuhn Loban Company of Germany and New York. And Warburgen Company of Hamburg, Germany. Where did the money come from to pay for the bailouts of these banks? From the Fed. And who decides on how much money is distributed? The Fed. And who gave the Fed authority over all our money? Congress gave the Federal Reserve Authority over the issuance and distribution of all money. Why did Congress give the Federal Reserve control over our money? So Congress could have at its disposal an unlimited money source it could draw from. So Congress gave the Fed authority to issue money simply so they can have a source to borrow from? That is correct. Why does Congress need to borrow money? Congress borrows money to finance its programs, and by doing so avoids raising taxes. They do this to gain public approval, and help them succeed in being re-elected. So the Congress and the President authorize this privately owned bank to issue money, so that the government can borrow this money, to pay for its programs, so the taxpayers will think they are doing a good job, and keep them in office. That about says it. And who pays back the money that Congress borrows from the Fed? The American people. And what does the Fed get out of all of this? The Fed is paid the interest off the money it loans to the government. So the Federal Reserve is a privately owned bank that lends paper money to the federal government and charges interest for this printed paper? That about sums it up. And Congress did this without a gun at its back. Apparently so. <laughs> all right, Let we can stop it there. If I've got this right. So I really recommend people go and watch all these guys' videos. It's such a concise summary of what's completely backwards about the Fed. And you almost go back and forth in your own mind thinking, hey, this can't be true yeah. to I need to blow on my brains because this is so fucking stupid. Yeah, it's it's oh. <laughs> it, it's wild. I mean, it, it, it's it's tr it, it is it like I said, like I've been keep saying, like when you start to peel back the layers here, it's the most insane conspiracy theory you could ever concoct. But it's real and it's published. And it's published. Okay. So I want to outline some of the tremendous costs of government um, controlling our money. And these are just like four of the big narratives that I picked up on in the Bitcoin standard. And I'm going to let you kind of flush each one of them out. Sure. Um, so the first one is he says that there was a huge economic expansion um, when every country was on a gold standard, uh, because what that meant was, firstly, it was very easy for countries to trade. Um, and I guess there was less false price signals country to country because no one was really, uh, you know, I, I guess government wasn't really setting the value of currency. And so just basically, historically, the biggest economic expansion we ever saw was when every country was on a gold standard. Uh, yeah, I think he I think he more or less makes that argument. Yeah, the, the Gilded Age. OK, the next argument and this one, I, I like I, I both understand it, but I don't quite understand the cost of it. Um, which is, I, I, Dave has talked about this on the show. Like, let's say out of nowhere, I wanted to establish what the cost of a car was. That's a, that's really hard to do. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, establishing the cost of anything is super hard to do. Um, but when you start understanding the hive mind of billions of people deciding what the relative value of purchasing a good is, it becomes pretty easy to figure out what the price of anything should be just because you put it out on the market and people decide, Hey, what do I want to give up in exchange for that? And then all of a sudden you end up with the price. But right. to have a single individual versus the hive mind trying to compute that, 
this single individual is not just going to lose every time. They can't possibly have the computational, the formulas, the anything versus, you know, the hive mind deciding what it, what it values something at. And so the problem with the Federal Reserve setting basically what the price of money should be is that at the core of the system is a centralized policy that creates a, a false um, price signal that then affects every single investment that's ever made. Now, th th I'm talking above what I completely understand. So if there are any dots you want to fill in on that one, um, I do understand that that's one of the biggest problems in terms of, um, you know, government ownership over money. Yes. No, I think he nailed it. I think that uh, there's not a lot to add there. Okay, cool. Look at that. I, I guess I, I bullshitted my way through that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely wrong. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> uh, you know, like in your head, you're like, it made no sense to me, but I feel like if I agree, we can move forward. Um, <laughs> this, this fucking I, idiot. Just keep going. <laughs> I spent my whole life. Yeah, yeah, that made sense. Uh, what, what was the next point? <laughs> And then the last thing he lays out, which is really interesting, and I know that it exists in college campuses, is that so much of our economy is not really based in providing value as much as it's based in being able to get grants or money from government. And what he explains is that even if you look at modern art, so much of it is uh, like purchased or sponsored by government, and that's why it's crap. Or so many of like you know the ideas that professors have and proliferate in college campuses, it's because they're getting grants from the government. It's not so much that they have to go to the marketplace and actually you know have students that are providing value or putting out studies that in some way provide value to the marketplace, which just totally distorts the entire concept of you know creating goods that have value. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and to think about the implications of that and also how prolific it is, is to really be aghast. OK, I mean, it, it's it's wild. All right. So we've painted, I think, a pretty accurate picture that government controlled money isn't working out well. It's not right. a good store of value. Um, and oh, and by the way, here's the last one that we skipped over. As as individuals, we have a good incentive to save and to kind of invest in our families, um, and that's generationally. Like if you have kids, you want to set your kids up to do as well as possible and your grandkids, and you hope that they can continue to build wealth and build wealth. Uh, government doesn't really operate in that way. If you're a politician, especially president, what you can only get elected twice, you want to spend as much fucking money as possible. And so like built into the system, the, their ability to spend – um, it, it's always going to be perverse incentive. Right. Yep. Nailed it. Okay. I think we've laid it out. We we've done it. it. The government should not have control over our money. We should have ways that we should be able to have sound money outside of their control. That's a good store of value, which basically leaves us with two options based on what we've seen thus far, um, in understanding stock flow ratios. And that's gold and Bitcoin. So we've already said that the problem with gold is it can theoretically be seized by government. And it's also not great um, in terms of uh, it's not great for transactions. Right. Uh, yeah. And certainly not global transactions. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great summary. OK. And then what gets libertarians the most excited for Bitcoin is that it has an organic market and user base. So it, it's not like. It has no centralized authority, but it's not just that. The demand for it has actually grown organically. The fact that it's gone up in value is because the market itself, individuals have gone, hey, I see the need for this digital currency, 
And it's not because like any single bank or any single person held a gun to you and said, hey, you're going to have to be able to use this currency. It's that it's actually, you know, completely it's grown completely independent from any central authority. It's beholden to an algorithm that people as they've used it have been able to with a hive mind basically make tweaks. And so you've got this thing that's totally outside of any individual control that's now operating as a currency. Yep, that's that's it. Okay, so before we move on from that, because I am going to ask a couple questions in terms of some of the risks of Bitcoin. Um, what what else can you tell us in terms of? Because I, I know that this is really the reason why you and so many people have been a little bit annoyed with me and Dave that we haven't given that much discussion to Bitcoin. Because one of the things that like I would like, I, let me stop you, yeah. Robbie. I wouldn't say annoyed so much as fucking enraged. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But here's what here's what I understand about the enragement is that you guys see, hey. There's this technical uh, technological development that's outside of government and government can't be technology. You see with the Internet, like they're trying to um, they would love to have better control over being able to police the information that we have. They would love to get back to where it's basically CNN and Fox News and they have full control over propaganda in the media that we see. But sometimes technology can literally circumvent and beat governments. And now all of a sudden we've got a technological development of a decentralized currency which can deep it can displace the power of government. Government's core power is in their ability to control currency and their ability to control currency is ruining the fabric of society because it doesn't allow us for saving and investment. And you guys are like, how are you guys not talking about this technological development that might cure all of our problems as libertarians? Do I have that right? I, I think so. I think so. But I but I also couched within the misgivings that I like I I know why I was hesitant to give it a shake and I and I understand why people within the libertarian movement are not giving it a shake so it's not there's no anger it's just it's just I I wish like maybe I'll throw it back at you like are you glad that you you read that book like and I'm not even coming at like are are you now a bitcoiner but just like are are you do you kind of see what the potential is here Yes, but I got a couple questions. Okay, okay. I, I still think that there's a couple inherent risks here, and so I'm okay. just I'm, I'm I'm more curious than I am. You know, I, I, firstly, I thought the book was fascinating, and I think the way he outlines money is fascinating, and the, the spiritual argument had me very excited. And I definitely think that th there's th there's some very interesting aspects to Bitcoin. Um, shit, what just happened here? Oh, I think I hit the. Still says you're recording and everything's good on this end. There we go. What the fuck just happened? You can I hear me, right? Wow. Okay. That was that, that was the government. They shut us down on the yeah, yeah, that was podcast. <laughs> they understood that we were going to start a revolution of people understanding that we don't need government currency. <laughs> and they tried shutting us down. But, uh, you know, Morpheus was on our side. And so he reconnected my microphone. Okay. So to me, this is the biggest problem with Bitcoin. So what was being explained in this book is that no single individual would have the processing power to kind of come into Bitcoin and kind of fuck up with the algorithm, because if they were to fuck with the algorithm, it would take such a huge investment of processing power. It wouldn't be worth it to them because they would like they would they would be invested in Bitcoin at that point. And why would someone want to like, you know, fuck up with the value of Bitcoin? I don't right. know if I said that in the best terms, no, but you, to me, you got it. okay. 
government, though, like uh, like theoretically, even in North Korea, which is pretty good at hacking or the U.S. government, it, it, the chief good of like we're kind of we're, we're going up against government here. Government's yeah. had a monopoly on currency and we're going, hey, we want to we're going to challenge your monopoly here. And so we're going we're going up against the biggest and the most powerful. Now, we might be on the right side here and it should it might be that government shouldn't have a monopoly on currency or of course they shouldn't have a monopoly on currency, but the, in the same way at some point they seized gold cuz they were like, listen, we don't fucking care about your freedom. We're running the currency game and we need your gold. Um it would seem to me like government could potentially have the resources to actually get in there, hack it and then devalue the bitcoin currency because they would have an incentive to, you know, make it worthless. Is there any risk of that? Absolutely 100%. I I, th- I think that's the only that that I don't want to say that's the only risk. There are other risks. That is the risk that I see. Um that the, and and but but the thing is that it was known. That that was why um the cryptographic algorithms were set to increase in difficulty uh uh you know as network effects take in and people onboard um so to your point yes i mean absolutely 100 percent. at some point some state actor or state adjacent actor say a bank or a, 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 a bunch of banks are going to attack this we that is the battle we all see coming we all see it um I think you got to have scales on your eyes not to see that that is coming because, like you said, Robbie, we are butting up against the the, the powers of the last several centuries. Um, right now, the the hashing the the sheer amount of computing power on the network. So, Bitcoin right now is the is the most powerful supercomputer ever created. Uh, it, it the amount of computing power on the Bitcoin network is astronomical. It it it, it like it almost brings tears to my eyes. Um, it would take a tremendous amount. It is not outside of, of I, I think there, you know, and, and to back up, because this is something that we all know is coming, there are estimates constantly within the Bitcoin community. Like, like if, if such and such tried to t- try to match the hashing power, like, could they? And I think it's more or less decided that, 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 and, and, I haven't checked recently, but probably anything outside of maybe collusion of the top two or three state actors um, would not be they just wouldn't have the power to do it. And that's only that's only from a static mathematical standpoint um, based on, you know, some assumptions and stuff like that. Uh, But also, you got to remember that there will be other people um, who to protect their asset will fire up their mining rigs that have been dormant either through lack of economic incentive or laziness or you know whatever it is so it'll be a dynamic battle um i i don't think that we're going to see an attack like that for a little bit and in the meantime i hope <laughs> i hope that base layer is as secure as possible um but uh it it is absolutely the battle that we see coming now keep in mind if the a government were to do that it, they would have to expend a tremendous amount of resources so even in them fighting us we are fighting them by making them pull the mask off and and they're either going to have to print money to do it or they're going to have to steal it from people to do it. And so it's kind of this weird game theory thing where where it, it just feels like Bitcoin has aligned every single aspect of the game theory uh, in its favor, what, whether it succeeds or not. They, they've done a great job of that. And and it would take just a tremendous amount to attack it at this point. It is not invulnerable, but uh, it's it's getting up there. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Now, um, 
two more questions on this. The next thing is in terms of kind of, um, you know, the risk of competition to a Bitcoin. So one of the big arguments of this guy is that Bitcoin is really the only thing that will ever be completely decentralized. Every single other, you know, currency, including Ethereum that's come after it has kind of some sort of a centralized authority that's looking to market and profit off of it. Um, and, you know, no one will ever grow organically in the same way that Bitcoin did or have the decentralized authority that, you know, that Bitcoin did. Um, none of that's ever going to exist by anybody else. Right. But you're still at risk for a couple things. One is in terms of like, you know, the real layman and the, the real demand for currency. Um, I had to read an entire 300 page book to somewhat wrap my head around that argument. So I don't know how quickly you can sell people on that. Um, and then if you get someone like a Chase Bank or, you know, Facebook or one of these bigger institutional players that has a little bit more of a built in credibility that goes, Hey, we got this digital currency and it's got, you know, super fast processing, or even we, we have a centralized place and it's the most secure centralized place, but no one can process more, you know, it almost seems to me like the technology of Bitcoin the, the game here is that I don't think that like your your average individual will hop on board if they just see value going up, up, up and up and you get your institutional investors like your pensions and whatever to actually step in and go or even governments, which is a th theoretically possible that people will, like, uh, you know, the government of uh, whatever Switzerland says, hey, instead of just being all gold, we actually want to back up our currency in some of this Bitcoin because uh, we think that that's, uh, you know, an asset that's uh, actually quite stable. So it, there is a little bit of a game here because I, I think it's a hard sell to like, you know, you, you, like my dad's, uh, you know, he used to, he's got lawyer friends and those people, they're in the stock market and, you know, every once in a while they buy Apple. And let's be honest, they're a bunch of fucking idiots. When things are at their peak, they go, oh, I guess I better buy that too. And then they go mm -hmm. ahead and buy it. If Bitcoin continues to go up, up, up and become something that institutional investors are investing in, then it will become a commonplace thing. Um, if that never happens, I just see the like the superior technology of Bitcoin being a hard story to tell to like your average individual, um, you know, to create substantial demand for it. Uh, but I just talked a whole bunch. So I'll, I'll see what you have to say on that. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think that's a I think you brought up a lot of great points and certainly a lot of misgivings that I had initially, because when you first hear about it, you're like, oh, OK, it's Internet money, like whatever, you know, I could just go replicate that. And, you, and, and truth be told, you could you could go copy and paste the code uh, because it is open source. You can copy and paste it and you can create Bitcoin. You can even name it Bitcoin because nobody in Bitcoin believes in intellectual property. So you can just name it Bitcoin and uh, and and reproduce it by and tweak one or two things. Uh, the, the, the real, um, the real value proposition, uh, initially, uh, over other competing cryptocurrencies is, is the security. It just, it just isn't there for other cryptocurrencies. And if you are interested as the first adopters are in the libertarian ethos behind it, um, you understand that that is really, really important because you're going up against big, big powers. Um, and we're yeah, but kind that, of, but that's what I'm saying. The marketplace of libertarians that you're selling on, hey, this is a safe asset because it's outside of government and the banking industry. Yeah. That's not like like I, I'm just talking from a purely sales perspective. No, I, I understand. Obviously, I understand. Let sales me, let me, creates demand. Yeah, yeah. Let me go. bridge I'm into sorry. it. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this this thing has sort of been like building a robot a little bit. Um, or maybe that's not a good. Uh, no, actually, I think that's a good example, because if you want to say, hey, once this thing is totally built, it's going to be a completed robot and then yes. it's going to make a lot of sense to people. Right. 
So now we're looking at a bunch of wires and we're like, what the fuck is this? You know, or, or the, the layman is looking at it like, what the fuck is this? Um, and, and and actually, I think that's that's going away. That era is kind of disappearing. And uh, and we are there are the more marketing and salesy people coming in and saying, OK, let's put a let's put a great face on this. Let's put it. Let's let's put arms and legs. It'll be indistinguishable from a human. You know, that that sort of thing is coming in now. I want to, by the way, I want to get in on that side of it. I want to I want to I think uh um, it's already happening that uh, Bitcoin's kind of in the discussion, same as gold as being a safe asset. I think if recession hits the fan, I, I remember what happened with gold the last time around. Oh yeah, I, I'm just telling. I want that. I want that Wall Street job, getting on the phone, calling up rich people and saying, "How are you not divert? Like, I, I need three percent of your wealth to diversify your portfolio. It right. needs to be here. I want. I want in on the marketing side. That's where I want to get in on this scheme, dude. Oh I think yeah, I can man. Sell this shit. Dude, it, it, and 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 God help you. I hope you do because <laughs> I, I mean, we we we. I I, th I think that that is it, and and you know the the Bitcoin community is is still a, a lot of like hardcores. You know whether they're hardcore about libertarianism, hardcore about coding, or hardcore about both. Um, they're they're hardcores, but but we. I I think that it is important to start transitioning, getting some some people that are not necessarily that oriented. Um, so long as they don't try to fuck with the 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 innards of the robot no, i don't uh, want to touch the robot i want to be out there yeah you want to sell the in, robot i want to be in the fucking boiler room for bitcoin right now yeah. with with three screens in front of me twiddling a pen in my thumbs yelling at someone on the phone yep. listen it's time to make some big boy decisions the recession's coming do you want to protect some of your wealth or not right exactly and i think i think so to to what you were saying earlier um other than the libertarian jeez it just started randomly thunderstorming. I hope that's not picking up on the mic. I didn't even know it was supposed to rain today, but uh, I heard it. Anyway. But I like I like the setting. I like it. In okay, the yeah. <laughs> this is when it gets real dark. <laughs> Bitcoin is going to enable genocides. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I think that the part of the value proposition of Bitcoin, it you know, it being that store of value, and us being early on in this in this um, adoption curve, it, it, there's potential for tremendous profits as well. And when you keep in mind the opportunity cost of keeping your wealth in any other asset, it starts to become economically very painful for you not to participate in the system. Um, and I think that that over a certain amount of time, I think that even the – so right now, I think the institutional investors investors are stuck in this kind of little mindfuck that they have where – well, they Typically, still need to sell people on, hey, we're putting you in safe assets. And so until there's a critical mass that switches over right. um, to Bitcoin, like they, when they do it, they'll all do it at once. And the, the demand spike for Bitcoin will be insane. And yeah. chances are someone will be able to front run them like the hedge funds will know, hey, some of these big people are, you know, yeah. and, it, and it's all it, once. It's like one of those once one person does it, yeah. um, it's, it's all going to go up. All right. I got one last question for you. And th this is uh, what we're kind of it, it, it's a little bit different than the, hey, is this Bitcoin thing going to work? But it's just kind of a little bit more technical and interesting. So one of the things with Bitcoin is that on purpose, it takes a tremendous amount of energy and processing power. Yep. It's almost like that's almost at the backbone of like um, it, it. Whoa. Is that the thunder and lightning that I'm hearing or just the yeah, mic? dude, I, I literally I might get cut here. I it might screen just blink. So but just keep going. Keep going. Power. Wow. You, you lose power. That happens. Uh, dude, I live in a 
in Bumblefuck. You see that? That's why you need to live in a more liberal area in a city. I never yeah, lived yeah, in New yeah. York City. <laughs> <laughs> you see the the value government provides if you just will participate. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it also sounds like you're like quickly moving around buckets to, for the leaks or whatever. But anyways, okay. So on purpose, it runs a tremendous amount of processing power, and that's part of what um. I'm trying to look for the right. It almost it, it like it ties Bitcoin to like a physical asset, and nice. that it, like it, it, it consumption is required of a physical good in order to create a value of Bitcoin, um, which is b- both extremely necessary for keeping a decentralized system, and also um, you know having like a set amount of investment that people need to do in order to like mine it. But at the end of the day, we're kind of burning energy uh, for, you know, I, 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 it's a good reason because it, it gives people to pr- preserve their wealth. Uh, but it's also it's not like you're burning energy so that you can, you know, f- farm or move your trailer or power your home. It's kind of because of a, you know, fictional algorithm. Uh, is there any way uh, you might I'm sure people have explored this, that all of that processing power could be tied to a more useful function than just solving equations like is there is there any sort of a way that that could kind of be like not that i'm like a green energy efficient person but there is something weird about the fact that like it's just burning a ton of energy for no reason other than you, you understand like there's something just yeah. conceptually a little no, weird i, I do and, and actually it's it's weird because there's a shocking amount of bitcoin that is actually mined based on green energy um, for for a variety of reasons, well, I've heard I actually, heating. They heat what, like they go to cold areas because it's uh, both right. cooler for keeping the computers cool, and then they're able to actually take some of the heat from that and heat shit, which is pretty cool. Yeah, man. Yeah. So it's uh, it's so actually, it, yeah, it's like a bizarre amount of Bitcoin is mined uh, via solar and and things like that, and um, and I think that you're going to see more of that. Uh, I think that you're going to see two. It things. sounds like I, you live in an outhouse, by the way. Right now. <laughs> Yeah. Does it sound bad? Yeah, yeah, but it's all good. I'm enjoying it. It's a nice setting. I, I oh see you just God. standing in a raining like room, moving around buckets. Oh, it's you kind of like the, uh, you can actually hear the rain. I can hear the rain. It's Dude, almost it like uh, it's almost like dumping. Fantasia. You know, it is dumping, and it doesn't rain in Texas in the in the summer, like after about May. So I don't. This is like so. Surprising. I haven't seen rain in probably like two months. Government weather machine. They don't want God us talking about Bitcoin. Government. <laughs> Uh, shit, man. Well, I'm all right. Sorry. I actually, I, I gotta, I gotta get to LOL to, uh, to, to do some spots. But uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Let's, uh, let's book club again. What, what should I read next, buddy? Oh, jeez. Read next? I don't know. I, I, I uh, I'll come. Oh shit, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, sorry, I got another lightning. I, I next book. Uh, sailing alone around the world. Uh, that sounds gay. What is it? <laughs> it's about the first guy to sail alone.